That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Down in Fort Worth, Texas, I got an email from a fellow. He says, I'm a 72-year-old disabled veteran in Fort Worth, Texas. My mail ballot was rejected. I had signed the ballot with my middle initial, but it was rejected because a copy of my signature for my voter registration does not have my middle initial. Honest to God, this is what they're doing in Texas. They can figure out a way to suppress the vote even when you mail it in. Because you're not there to contest that. You know, it's like, you're uh, SOL. Another thing that I want to point out to you is that when governments go authoritarian and start imprisoning and killing people because of their politics and treating people in the legal system differently because of their politics, when that happens, it always happens first with people who are considered criminals, where there's a broad consensus across society that they're not good people. That's who they go after first. Uh, when Louise and I lived in Germany, we went down and visited Dachau. Uh, Dachau was never a death camp, although they did have a crematorium there, and tens of thousands of people died there from overwork, from typhoid fever, from regular epidemics, from malnutrition. But the actual march you into the showers and then spray you with Zyklon gas, that was all done outside Germany so that Hitler could claim, I didn't do that, the Poles did that in Auschwitz. We visited Dachau, and in the history, they've got this whole long history that's all printed out there as you're walking around the, the concentration camps, and they point out that it was first a place for prisoners, for people who had broken the law. It was a way of, you know, rehabilitation through work. Arbeit macht frei. Work makes you free. So they always start out with the people where it's not that controversial, maybe you shouldn't be so that, you know, you shouldn't go that far, but yeah, it's a bad guy. So here we have this young man here in Portland, Oregon, who shot and killed a right-wing protester, a proud boy, whatever he was. And the guy who'd committed that killing, and he claims he did it in self-defense, I'm not inclined to agree necessarily with that from what I've seen, but he certainly felt threatened Keep in mind, Kyle Rittenhouse, the guy who killed two people, Trump said about him, Rittenhouse, he was trying to get away from them. That's what it looks like. I guess he was in big trouble. He probably would have been killed. So Trump is making a self-defense claim for Rittenhouse, the guy who killed a couple of left-wingers. But the left-winger who killed a right-winger, his name is Michael Forrest Reinel, I believe, R-E-I-N-O-E-H-L. 
21 out of 22 witnesses who saw him being taken down by the police said that he walked out of this house toward his car. He was talking on his cell phone and he was eating candy. He was eating gummy worms. And the police opened fire. Over 30 bullets killed him instantly. So then Trump goes on TV and he says, and I quote, we sent in the U.S. Marshals, took 15 minutes, and it was over. They got him. They knew who he was. They didn't want to arrest him, and 15 minutes that ended. So we have the President of the United States saying that it is okay for police in the United States to execute somebody rather than arrest them and subject them to due process because he's decided that they're a bad person. Now, yeah, this guy, in all probability, was a bad person. He did kill somebody. He probably wasn't justified in that, but that's something that a court should determine. But when the president says it's okay when they just kill people, we've got a serious problem. This is how authoritarianism begins. Oh, yeah, we're going to tear children away from their families and put them in cages. You know, that's how, this is how, this is how the dehumanization, the, the, the reduction of valuing of human life begins. And I think this is mind-boggling. And I'm just astonished that it's not like, the, you know, one of the top stories in the media. The president endorses extrajudicial killing by his police. These were federal police. These were, they were working for Donald Trump. And I'd like to know if they were told to kill him rather than arrest him or if they simply decided to do it. I think this is a big deal. Meanwhile, Donald Trump says to North Carolina, have some disaster money. He's visited there six times. It's a swing state. To California, he says, no, we're not sending you guys a penny. Wildfires, you need to rake your forests. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Again, another sign of authoritarian government where you reward your friends and you punish your enemies, in this case, at the level of the states. On the line with us is Gene Schrodel, professor of public policy at Claremont Graduate University and author of a new book, Voting in Indian Country, The View from the Trenches, Brilliant book. Could you start out by telling us about the legal status of Native peoples? Absolutely, and thank you for having me. Native Americans, like any other person born within the United States, is a citizen of the United States. What is different is that the individuals who also belong to the 574 federally recognized tribes also have a Native citizenship. And that is that gives them what is could be considered tripartite citizenship because even though most of us are not aware of it, the rest of us have dual citizenship. We have national citizenship and we have state citizenship. And each one has different rights. And it's interesting because that was the distinction that was used in the 19th century to keep women from voting because the argument was the right to vote is a right of state citizenship, not national citizenship. So we, I'm not native. I have dual citizenship. Tom, if I'm guessing you're not native, you probably also have dual citizenship, but they have tripartite, but there's, they have the right to vote or should have 
the same right to vote as any other citizen of this country. And yet one of the stories that we're hearing in this uh, year of massive uh, Republican voter suppression all across the country, every opportunity they have, every way they can do it. And in fact, I, you know, I remember this in 2016 as well, um, you know, requiring, for example, uh, ID that has specific street names and numbers where in many Native communities there are no numbers on the streets. Historically, obviously, you know, Native Americans are the only people who have been subject to a massive four-century-long genocide. You could say African-Americans have been the victim of terrible stuff, and, and I think in many ways it qualifies as a genocide, but it was the official policy of the United States government to kill Indians, Native Americans, for centuries. And to what extent is this still the policy of this government not to allow Native Americans to vote or, or more broadly to have political power? Well, I think you have to distinguish, again, between national and state. I mean, there are state governments and political jurisdictions with large Native populations have adopted laws and policies and procedures that will disenfranchise Native people. They do denial, dilution, suppression. And what's interesting is these things occur with other minority populations, but when you're talking about Native Americans, there are always some unique twists. You were mentioning a moment ago voter identification, which would require to have people to have residential street addresses. I mean, in 2018, the Supreme Court, three weeks before the general election, allowed North Dakota to put that into a practice. And they would have, in one foul swoop, disenfranchised 5,000, roughly 5,000 people, who, many of whom had voted in the primary. Unfortunate, or fortunately for those of us on the other side from those folks, um, people worked very, very hard to, in that very short period of time, to create addresses using GIS for people. But there are other things related to voter ID. So, for example, um, one of the stories that I got for my book involved an elderly Navajo woman. And she did not speak much English, and she had voted all of her life. And when voter ID came in, she was being disenfranchised because she had always used her thumbprint to vote um, to prove who she was. So she collected materials, went in to the Department of Motor Vehicles, showed them her native Navajo Nation documentation that she had been born here, but she didn't have a birth certificate. And the DMV near where she, the closest to where she lived, said, Blanca, we don't issue identification. This elderly woman wow. went back to the tribe. They contacted a lawyer. The lawyer went with her to the DMV. The DMV still refused, the local one. The lawyer then went with this woman to the main DMV office in Flagstaff. And again, they were turning her down, and, she, and the lawyer had to threaten legal action. And this is a poor elderly woman, and it took a lawyer to force the state of Arizona to give her the identification that she needed to vote. I mean, it's just... Excuse me, I just think it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. 
Um, we're, we're, we're talking with Jean Schrodel, who is the author of a new book, uh, Voting in Indian Country, The View from the Trenches. Jean, you just told one remarkable story. You, you, you note in your book that um, history is essentially a living force in the present for Native people. Can you expand on that? And if you have an example to share with us, we, we have about three minutes here until we hit a hard break. Okay. I mean, it's the sense that these battles are still being fought. When you travel in places such as Montana or South Dakota or even Arizona, that history is right there. In many places, the off-reservation white communities will have annual reenactments of Custer's heroic last stand. You will have Wounded Knee. Wounded Knee is in South Dakota. It's the site of both the protests in the 70s, the occupation, but also of an egregious massacre. And the attempts to keep Native people in South Dakota from voting are extraordinary. South Dakota, for example, sent out to all registered voters applications to vote by mail. But they required that people have those either notarized or officially witnessed. South Dakota also has a law that says if you vote and are living someplace other than where you lived, where you registered, when you registered and is on file, you can be convicted of a felony, which um, allows you to be imprisoned for up to five years. Knowing full well that large portions of people on reservation do not have stable living arrangements. At one point, I saw data showing that people, about 40% of people on the Pine Ridge Reservation didn't have a stable home address. They were moving from one place to another. Well, you could be an exact living across the street from where you were when you registered, and you could be charged with a felony offense in the state of South Dakota. But that have I got enough time to tell us? When did they pass that law, Jean? Oh, gosh. That was quite a while ago. That's not a new one. Really? Um, wow. Yeah. They also are extremely active in purging the voting rolls. So between 2016 and 2020, the Rosebud Sioux Reservation is Todd, um, Todd County, as opposed to Oglala, Lakota County, which is where most of Pine Ridge is. Between 2016 and 2020, 27 percent of the voters on the Pine Ridge Reservation were purged from the county's voting rolls. 27 percent. That is mind-boggling. And so they would have to re-register in order to vote. Um, Right. These are just naked attempts to suppress the Indian vote, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just incredible. Or we think about voting by mail, which everybody is you know, thinks very important in the middle of the pandemic. But if you take, for example, the Navajo Nation Reservation, which is mostly in Arizona but cuts over into Utah and New Mexico, it is larger than the state of West Virginia. There is no home mail, residential mail delivery on the reservation. West Virginia has 725 post offices. On the Navajo Nation, there are only 40 places, and not all are post offices, where you can get mail or send mail. 
Remarkable. Gene Schrodel, professor of public policy at Claremont Graduate University, the author of the new book, Voting in Indian Country, The View from the Trenches. Gene, thanks for dropping by and sharing this with us. Thank you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's talk media for the sane among us, trying to keep us all sane here. I'll be right back. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure. 
how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Monday was Indigenous Peoples Day, how we've reincarnated Columbus Day, essentially. I mentioned at the time that because of the hearings into the, on the Supreme Court, we would be moving that back till later in the week. And that's right now. That's the, this hour today. Robin Zephyr is on the line with us. Robin is an attorney and the co-author of a book, Warrior Is, along with his brother, Harley Zephyr. Warrioris.com is the website for the book. And Robin, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for writing this absolutely brilliant book. Uh, tell us about your grandfather and General Custer. Well, thank you, Tom, for inviting us. I'm kind of uh, saddened that we, Harley, my brother, was not able to uh, join us on uh, this presentation. But yes, Tom, the book that we wrote was a work of love that has been uh, in the process for generations. Uh, as you all know, there's uh, there was a very important historical event that occurred back on uh, June 25th, 1876, out on the Grass River at the Little Bighorn in Montana. However, that is only a part of our great-grandfather's life story. Tom, his name is Mato Niampi, which translated to English is Saved by Bear. And he's a Minikoju Lakota, which we are also. Um, we uh, come from the sacred lands of the, the Hisapa, the Black Hills of South Dakota. But um, the uh, one of the main drawing points of this story, the life story of our great-grandfather, was his confrontation, his one-on-one confrontation with Lieutenant Colonel George A. Custer back on that historical date. And... I know that uh, people that uh, pick up the book and become interested in it, um, many times we, we recognize that their their attractiveness, their interest in the story flows from the spiritual uh, foundation of the story itself that emanates from the very land. Uh, people all across the world, when you hear them uh, or you hear a, uh, a reference to the little bighorn or Custer, um, they'll turn their heads, whether they're in uh, Japan or Russia or India or South America, because it's it just has that type of a spiritual energy about it. And so we took uh, this story that was passed down through generations in our family, um, through oral history mostly, and... Um, uh, I would like to tell you about the event that basically gave us the spiritual permission to tell the story, if I could, Tom. Sure, we have five and a half minutes left here. Go for it. Okay. Well, uh, my brother Harley, who is also my teacher, my mentor, he took a very sacred duty upon himself to prepare himself to be able to tell this story. And this was a lifelong commitment for him. So when... Um, we he planned a ceremony on uh, that we held on September 29th, 
2010, right there on Last Stand Hill out of the greasy grass. And during that ceremony, we were granted the spiritual permission to finally come forward uh, and tell this story to, to the world. And it was held secret for approximately 141 years because we were advised through the generations and through the spiritual connection that we could not bring it forward until such time as we had this spiritual ceremony that would grant us a spiritual permission. And I remember during that particular ceremony, Tom, I was in the altar speaking to the Creator myself, and at that particular moment, I felt a spiritual energy move through my body. And I know who it was. I know it was my great-grandfather. But we had prayed there for the spirits of all those that were involved, all those that had passed, all those that were to come, be they warriors, be they the soldiers, even Custer himself, as well as the horses and all beings on that land. That's remarkable. So what happened on that day 141 years ago? Well, as you know, there was a uh, genocide the United States saw the Lakota people as being in the way of manifest destiny. And the main uh, uh, trigger of the the purpose and the intent to remove us was to gain control of the Black Hills and the gold. And the warriors, including our great-grandfather, planned this out spiritually for over a year for this confrontation. And that's how we do things, Tom. And so when the uh, confrontation was to come, there were spiritual messages sent that this could be worked out through diplomacy and peace. But should the moment come when the Calvary and Custer came to annihilate us and to remove us from Earth, we knew that we had to take a stand. And many times this story is, is referred to as Custer's last stand. Well, in a sense, it was a last stand, but truly it was ours, because it was mm-hmm. our duty as the protectors of Uchi Macaw, great uh, grandmother Earth, to survive and to basically set an example for all peoples across the world that they too can survive in their own way, because there are greasy grass battles all across the world um, and all across history. This was an important one because it was shown and it was prominently mentioned. And we are honored to be able to tell this story for our great-grandfather and our people. We're talking with Robin Zephyr, who, uh, with his brother Harley, wrote the book Warrior Is, in large part about their great-grandfather who was at that, at that battle. In the epilogue, you talk about the time of a healing circle. What do you mean by that, uh, Robin? By the time you get to the epilogue, of course, you would have read all of the things going on, and we thought it was extremely important to connect the spiritual foundation of our great-grandfather's life as well as the people's lives to be able to adequately tell the story in a meaningful way. But when we get to the epilogue and we talk about the healing of the circle, there is a circle of life in all things in existence. And each being, not just human beings, but each being is a part of that circle. And the circle needs each part. And we have seen moments in our history where the circle has become broken or shattered. And the Greasy Grass Battle was one of those moments. We refer to it as a breaking of the world. But sometimes in human history, the circle needs 
to become broken so that we can see the broken pieces to identify them and to be able to better fit them together. So when we talk about the healing of the circle, there are moments in time when all the circles of all the groups of peoples throughout the world reach out for each other and they seek each other out to form the bigger circle. So that's what we mean with healing of the circle. Do you think that we're at one of those moments right now? I do. And we made a reference to this. There was a great article that was written by a friend of mine named Marin Chalupka. She wrote an article in the Warrior magazine. It's called Who a Warrior Is. And she made reference to our mention of this, that in fact there is a coming of this and we can all take it to heart and do it if we're committed. Marvelous. The book is Warrior Is, co-author Robin Zephyr along with his brother Harley Zephyr. Warrior is, W-A-R-R-I-O-R-I-S dot com is the website. Robin, thanks so much for dropping by today. Great talking to you. Thank you, Tom. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Steve in Topanga, California. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind? Trump might tr- steal the election through the Electoral College. And nothing really we can do about that. Nominee for did the that Supreme once. Court. I mean, it was the Electoral College loophole that put him in the White House four years ago. Exactly. So what I'm, my proposal is we should concentrate on the House and Senate races because it can't be stolen like the Electoral College. And as far as a nominee for the Supreme Court, that's a done deal. But if we lose the House and Senate, we're really uh, in a big trouble. And I think that uh, yeah. all the other stuff is just smokescreen, keep us uh, from concentrating on the House and Senate. And that's what I'd well, like I think we can chew gum and, and walk at the same time. You know, I'm, I, hopefully my ballot will arrive soon. I think the, here in Oregon, they mailed them yesterday. We got our voter guides a couple days ago. I will not just vote for the president. I'll vote for... Oh, yeah. Got ours. We're here in California and got ours already. And we're, uh, we're going to drop them off today, my brother and I. So anyway, that's my two cents. And, uh, okay, Steve. All right. Thanks a lot. Be sure, be sure your ballot doesn't go in one of those Republican phony baloney drop boxes. It's amazing. The, the Republican Party in California is putting out phony drop boxes for people to put their ballots in, presumably mostly in Democratic areas. If the Democrats were doing this, the Republicans would be screaming, they're going to steal your vote. They're going to throw it in the trash. The Democrats are saying, well, we don't think this is legal. This is not a good idea. Come on, guys. Randy in Twinsburg, Ohio. Hey, Randy, what's on your mind today? First time caller, and uh, I've listened to you off and on for several years now, and I appreciate your candor, your truth. I just want to bring a point. The voter suppression, I was listening to the piece uh, that's happening on the reservation, et cetera, throughout, and and that voter registration, that suppression is happening throughout the country. And Tom, my, and it might, it's late right now for this election, but I think there needs to be a coalition uh, of some sort uh, put together to come to the truth about all people. Now, I'm a black man with roots that are, I'm going to say Indian, but the real term is indigenous. The truth of the color of skin as it relates to people, if you go to the ship logs of many of those colonizers and how they described the color and the tint of the people, swarthy, tarny, and I think you've got some knowledge about that. That wasn't Mm -hmm. a very fair-skinned person. (laughs) My point is that there's there's voter, voter suppression happening with black people 
why don't someone of your stature and 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 others come together with all 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 of us that are indigenous and begin to deal with this country and it's <laughs> it's desperate attempt to keep us down all right does that make sense yeah. to you where i'm coming from it does, Randy, and hopefully that's the Democratic Party. I mean, the, the Democratic Party has become a coalition that is, you know, welcoming of a whole wide range of minorities, from gender minorities to racial minorities to religious minorities. And that's, I think, a good and healthy thing. And, and then there's, a, you know, a fair number of people who are, quote, the majority who are part of it as well. That ideally is your coalition. I, I'm not really in a position to start a new organization or anything. It's not, you know, where I'm at in my life <coughs> and the work that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. But I totally get mm-hmm. what you're saying, Randy, and I, I think it's a great suggestion. Mary in Seattle. Hey, Mary, thanks for listening to KBCS. What's up? I'm wondering in history, because I know you're a historian, has there ever been such a full court press to destroy voting rights since we allow women and minorities to vote in this country? Have you ever seen such an all-out assault on voters' rights? Well, I think the difference, Mary, between now and times in the past is that we're having a conversation about it now. I mean, certainly the you know pre-65 you had you know all kinds of god awful laws in, in the former Confederate states, and uh, you know in the South, by and large, and a few other states as well, um, the disenfranchised people. Prior to nineteen twenty, women were not allowed to vote in the United States. You know, prior to the eighteen seventies, African Americans were not allowed to vote in the United States. So, voter suppression has a long history in this country. There were some states, even at the at the founding of the Republic where uh, people could not vote if they did not own property. I mean, you know, a lot of that changed in the first couple of years after we became a republic. In fact, I think pretty much all of it changed. But, but uh, voter suppression has a long history. It's just that we're now talking about it. So I'm, I'm with you that this is breathtaking. Um, I, I've been yelling about this since 2000. I mean, the, two, the 2000 election, when, when Jeb Bush knocked 90,000 African-Americans off the voting rolls in Florida, just to get his brother elected, and he used a felon list that his brother had given him, uh, his brother George W. Bush, the governor of Texas, he used a, a felon list of Texans who had similar names, not even the same names. They didn't match middle, middle names or middle initials. Texas felons who had similar names to people in, in Florida and, and you know knocking African Americans and Hispanics off the voting rolls. So this has been going on for a long time. This is the default way that the Republican Party tries to win elections. It's just that in my experience, this is the first election, frankly, in my lifetime, where the so-called mainstream press, where everything from the big corporate-owned networks to NPR, have actually acknowledged that the Republican Party is uh, you know aggressively trying to suppress the vote. You know, it's interesting. The last day for voter registration in the state of Virginia, somebody accidentally cut a cable that went to the computers for registering voters in Virginia. And so people couldn't vote. Now, a federal judge has come out and said, yeah, well, we can extend that. But, you know, what's really interesting about this, what a coincidence. Exactly four years ago, the exact same thing or something very similar happened in Virginia where the voter registration site went down during the last day of voter registration. Also, and, uh, you know, it's just coincidence. Right? It's got to be a coincidence. Daryl in Danville, New Jersey. Hey, Daryl, what's on your mind today? I'm black, and I've been hearing a lot of noise on social media about Trump's 
platinum plan, this black economic empowerment plan that, that Trump is pushing forward three weeks before an election. Best it's of my knowledge, there's no such thing, Daryl. It's just talk, essentially. This I know. However, there are people on social media who actually believe this is a plan. I mean, it's basically like a, a Christmas list that you write out for Santa Claus, even though you know Santa Claus doesn't exist. Yeah, Trump is running a con. <laughs> surprise, surprise, he's running a con. The guy's a con man. That's what we should expect. It's, it's unfortunate that he's running a con that's targeting African-Americans. Uh, you know, it's not a good thing, but that's what he's up to. Michael in Long Island City. Hey, Michael, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, how you doing? Tom, listen to your show good. all the time. It's great. Good source of information. Keep up the good work. I have a crazy idea. I'm going to be quick. It relates to the Senate. Rather than to have just uh, two senators from a state, why not have one senator per party, meaning one for a Democrat, one for Republican, and independent senator? And that way, you can either get, uh, when there are major um, decisions, you can get, I don't know, um, a three uh, to zero vote. Um, a two-to-one vote, uh, things of that nature. I get what you're saying, and I know the direction you're moving, Michael, is to get a Senate that's more representative of America, and uh, I salute that goal. I think probably a better way to get there would be either to, uh, you know, if we're going to do constitutional amendments, for example, which is what that would require, would be to make the Senate, like the House of Representatives is, proportional to the population of the state. So California, with I think 34 million people, uh, you know, might get, um, and, and versus Wyoming with fewer than 1 million pers- people, uh, you know, California would get 34 senators and Wyoming would get one. Uh, it's unlikely that we're going to get that far. But, uh, you know, proportional representation is a really good idea. And and I think that, you know, that, that would be, st- you know, to make the Senate more representative. The fact of the matter is, the Democrats in the United States Senate were elected by 40 million more people than were the Republicans in the United States Senate. Yet Republicans control the Senate because of all these small, uh, you know, low population, um, high Fox News viewing states. And and uh, you know, another way to deal with that, another way to solve that problem, as it were, would be to have the um, uh, to have the the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico be admitted as states. That would add four probably Democratic senators to the to the Senate, which would restore a lot of balance. And another possibility is having California break up into two or three states, um, and New York for that matter, have New York City and uh, and environs um, split off from New York State and become its own state. I doubt any of those things are going to happen any day soon, but uh, those would be the directions that I would move to, to get what you're talking about done. Steve in Seattle. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind today? You know, I've been listening to you for a long time. Uh, listen, uh, you know, these neo-Nazis, uh, how do they get away with this in, in America, you know, being a Nazi after, you know, killing Jews and killing Americans um, on the beaches in France and, and stuff like that, and these people working with these tattoos on their neck, and the American public doesn't get excited at all about it. Don't even mention it. And... Uh, I know. Notice when I was in high school or in sixth grade uh, back in 1955, and this one woman, her uh, she was my teacher, and she was the one that started telling us a story about her brother. Her brother got killed during the Second World War on the beaches in France, 
and and you know and I could see her pain you know her pain and her you know and what she what she was crying about what she was feeling and and when you see these these bodies like on the old films and you show you see the bodies washing up on shore and then now you got these Nazis running around bragging and they got the uh, Nazi insignias on their necks and and uh, claiming they're Nazis and and what's wrong with America? Why don't we? You know, I mean, look what they did to the Jews and stuff. And why don't we get excited about it? You know, about these people. Yeah. Uh, like I, I've seen them in, uh, Winston, in, in in Tennessee, walking, going through Tennessee and Eastern Tennessee. You'll see signs and neo-Nazi signatures and stuff like that. You know, it doesn't make sense to me. You know, with yeah. all the stuff that we got it, going on, and yet these people are allowed to be be that. And I think of all the mothers that just cried and cried losing their sons during that war. But is there anything we can do, Tom, about that to get things? Ex- yeah, know, I think it's the generation that fought the Nazis, the the original anti-fascists. My father was one of mm-hmm. them. He right out of high school, he volunteered for the mm-hmm. army to go fight Nazis. And, uh, you know, uh, fortunately, I suppose, the war ended while he was in boot camp. So he ended up in Japan for two years with the occupation forces. But uh, as did uh, Louise's father, same deal, actually. <laughs> they were about the same age. And, uh, and in fact, Louise's dad was in Japan for two years as well. But uh, I think that generation is, you know, is largely gone. My dad died in 2006. Louise's dad died, you know, somewhat before that. And and uh, the people who remember the, I mean, our government used to produce, uh, you know, what you could call public, you know, propaganda videos. They were public service mm-hmm. announcements about Nazi ideology. You can find them on YouTube. They're, they're not hard to find. Yeah, yeah. And, and, in the, in the, and then in the 1950s, uh, we were producing propaganda videos about the horrors of communism. And, and, you know, because we were fighting the Cold War against, you know, the, the, the Stalin and then, you know, Khrushchev and all that kind of stuff. And... It's been a long time since we have had the government itself say there is an external threat. And I think the largest piece of what's going on here, Winston, is that the Klan is still unacceptable in the United States in polite company, as it were. Yeah. Um, well, not, polite company is the wrong phrase. The Klan is, has, has become unacceptable over the last 20, 30, 40 years, um, even among white racists, even even in so-called conservative communities. And so they're, they're moving in other directions. And what they found is that being a Nazi is not as unacceptable. And, 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 and being a, uh, a, a, a white supremacist is even more acceptable than being a Nazi. And, be, and, and, and proclaiming that your domestic terrorism organization is actually a militia is even more acceptable than calling yourself white supremacists. But they're all on, you know, they're all the same thing. And we need to acknowledge this and, and recognize that we have a problem with domestic terrorism being incited by essentially Nazis. I mean, CNN did a graphic the other day where... Uh, that that showed the, this was murders from 2007 to last year committed by domestic terrorists, and 74 percent were committed by right wing extremists, two percent by left wing mm-hmm. extremists, and that's that's for what a 13 year period, 
the FBI understands this. The FBI issued a report on this back in 2009 that was written during the Bush administration. But because it attacked the Nazis, the Republicans got all upset about it because they're on the same end of the spectrum, the hard right. And they actually used public opinion, essentially, to force President Obama to pull that report and just, you know, bury it someplace. And so now we've got, you know, the, the, even the you know, Christopher Ray is coming out and talking about this. And Donald Trump is all upset and he's trashing the director of the FBI now because the director of the FBI is saying, you know, the biggest threat we have in the United States right now, the, your biggest threat of getting killed by a terrorist in America is not a Muslim. It's not a lefty. It's not a, 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 a protester or even a, a looter in, a, in, a, you know, in, in Portland or something, although I don't think we've had any looting here. We've just had vandalism. Um, it's right-wing militias. They literally have been killing people. And, and this is, these numbers are from 2007. I would take it all the way back to the 19, what was it, the 90s with Tim McVeigh. Uh, I don't recall the exact year that that, that happened, uh, the, you know, the, the Oklahoma City murder. But uh, this, you know, it, it started, it really picked up steam when Bill Clinton was elected in, in the early 90s, in 92, 3, 4, 5. And I think that a large part of that was the result of the NRA spreading absolute fear and hysteria in order to sell more guns. They have been very, very successful at making hundreds of billions of dollars in profits, or in revenue anyway, certainly billions of dollars in profits for the weapons industry, particularly now the assault weapons industry. And, and that propaganda that was being spread by the NRA to frighten people to get them to buy guns radicalized people politically and, 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 and pushed them into things like these so-called militia groups that are just, you know, white supremacist, Nazi, neo-Nazi domestic terrorism groups. And uh, God bless Gretchen Whitmer for saying these are not militias. These are domestic terrorists. And that's exactly what they are because, you know, he, he, she was targeted for that. Winston, thank you for the call. Jason in Chicago. Hey, Jason, what's up? Last week, you were warning us that the Trump administration is in discussion with Republican-dominated state legislators with a plan to have the state legislator override the popular vote and hand the electoral vote right. to Trump. But what I didn't hear, yeah, and Trump forgive referred me if I missed that. it, yeah, uh, what I didn't hear, was, though, was a call to action for us all to call our state legislature reps and pressure them to commit to accepting the state's popular vote results. I think we need to put these state ropes on notice that their jobs are at stake if they ignore the will of their constituents. Do you agree? I don't disagree, Jason. I don't have a lot of faith that Republic, elected Republicans, particularly at the state level, where they're even more dependent on money from the Koch network than they are at the federal level, will be providing you with a listening ear. But I'm always in favor of people contacting their state representatives and their state senators or you know, assembly people or whatever they may call it in their state house of burgesses. Um, I'm always in favor of that. And I think it's, it's one of the biggest mistakes that people make is not following their local state legislature, not knowing who their state legisl- who their state representative and who their state senator are. Um, those are important people. Those are important things. And, and they don't hear from us anywhere near enough. Is that what you were yeah, looking so, for, Jason? Yeah, I, I think that we should all contact ours and, and get heard, or try to be heard at least. Yeah, I am absolutely with you. I am absolutely with you. Jason, thank you. Uh, Craig in Glendale, California. Hey, Craig, what's up? Oh, hey, Tom. Thanks for taking the call. You know, I've been hearing this thing that's been worrying me a lot about what conservative Christians are saying about um, voting for Trump. And they're saying this thing like, I'm a Christian first. And 
I think it's a dog whistle. I think what they're actually saying is, I don't care who he is. It's important to be a Christian first, which I believe is pretty intellectually lazy and against our Constitution. But it gives them justification for, for voting for Trump, and it scares me a lot. Yeah. You know, people, we, we, we all define our identities in a variety of ways. You know, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a, a, a breadwinner, I'm a worker, I'm a, you know, f- fill in the blank, right? And, and for some people, their religion is so central to their lives that if you ask them, who are you? You know, rather than saying things like what I just said, they would say, I'm a Christian, or I'm a Muslim, or I'm a Jew, or I'm, you know, f- f- fill in the blank. I don't have a problem with that per se, but when you're voting your religion, that suggests to me that you believe that the person you're voting for is going to put religious principles into law. And that is the antithesis of what this country was founded on. It's the exact opposite of the idea of the founders of this country. So to claim that you're doing that and that you are a patriot or a loyal, you know, loyal to the United States, the Constitution, are rather inconsistent, right? That would be a lie. Totally agree. Okay. Craig, thank you very much for the call. And, 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 and this is, you know, Craig, the conversation I just had with Craig was in the context of somebody voting Christianity. Multiply that times 100 if you're talking about a judge saying that Christianity is going to define her interpretation of the law and that the whole point of going into the law is to prepare the world for Christ, which is the essence of what handmaiden Amy has said. Tim in Aloha, Oregon. Hey, Tim, what's on your mind? My family is, or my wife and sons are on the Affordable Care Act, and it's been a great program. It took no time to sign up, if you know what you're doing. Basically, whether it's Social Security or, the, or any number of things that, we've, that I've signed up for over the years, if you have the proper documentation and you're not lying and making grievous errors, there's really no problem signing up. It's been a, it's been a godsend, as they can say, in terms of taking care of us. We've done real well with that yeah. program. Good. You know, I was on, on Providence Healthcare for a year, you know, 20 years with a flawless payment record, and they made nothing but errors. And then they actually canceled me, didn't even tell me they did. So it was scary stuff. But, you know, this whole thing with this Barrett, I don't think people understand the significance of what's going on and what can happen, you know. Uh, and the trouble is with um, with Trump, it's that old in for a penny, you know, scenario. Mm-hmm. Once he got elected, the Democrats were, I mean, the Republicans were making excuses about, oh, give him a chance. You know, he, has, he doesn't have any political background. Then when it got worse, they knew that their homophobic, racist, misogynistic background the people who were voting for him weren't we're going to continue to, to support them if they stuck with him you see what i mean so oh yeah that's the situation yeah. that's the no, situation that's... we're in and one of the most important days in the history of this country is coming up forget about the complacency and get out and vote you know although there yeah. are four Amen. words that can solve all the world's problems you know what those are don't you tom our thoughts and no, prayers and... that'll take care of everything <laughs> right thanks tim we'll be right back Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, 
all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Monday, Donald Trump was in a little town of 40,000 people in Florida doing a rally. Why would he go to a little town of 40,000 people? Sanford, Florida? Oh yeah, that's where Trayvon Martin was murdered. It took the media a month to figure out that Trump was going to Tulsa on Juneteenth because Stephen Miller told him to. And they never even blinked about his going to Sanford. It's just mind-boggling. We've got another unarmed black man who was trying to be a good Samaritan. His name is Jonathan Price, who was killed by a police officer. Wolf City police officer. What happened was uh, Jonathan Price was uh, at a convenience store. There was a couple involved in a domestic dispute. He tried to intervene to prevent someone from being injured. Police officer showed up, said, oh, a black man, and shot him in the back. Shot him twice in the chest and once in the back. He is dead. The officer has been placed on administrative leave. No further information is available. The Hunt County Sheriff, 
uh, Randy Meeks said uh, it is not it was not a Hunt County Sheriff's deputy who shot him. It was a Wolf City Police Department. This is uh, in Texas, Wolf City, Texas. So, you know, here we go again. Right. I mean, how how often is this going to? Well, it just seems to happen every week. Uh, We have had in the United States, you know, Trump has been campaigning on this whole, you know, our cities are burning thing. It's interesting. I was on a, a, a Zoom conference call over the weekend. It was a, a board meeting for a nonprofit I'm on and people from all over the country um, and people there from Minneapolis and from Chicago, as well as a couple of us here in Portland. And, and uh, it was like, you know, people outside those cities are like, are you, are you guys OK? And and we're like, well, here in Portland, it's like three square blocks. And in Minneapolis, they were like, yeah, it's four square blocks here. And it's not even, you know, like. Fox News is portraying it. In fact, they're having to go to years old footage in some cases to scare the hell out of people. Um, This from Raw Story, 95% of the 12,607 political demonstrations in the United States, this is a period from May 24th to September 19th, 95% of 12,000 political demonstrations were 100% peaceful. Out of those 12,600 demonstrations, there were 351 incidents, including curfews and sometimes physical attacks. In 29 of these, there was violence against civilians. Twelve people have been killed, nine of them by the police. And in an additional five drive-by shootings, three police officers have been killed by the Boogaloo Boys. Daniel in Fort Lauderdale. Hey, Daniel, what's up? Yeah, I just um, wanted to give you a call. I got a little fired up this morning. I, I listened to SiriusXM all day in the background of my office, and I jumped between channels, basically POTUS, Urban View, and uh, and this channel here. But this morning, listening to POTUS and Smirconis' show, nothing against Smirconis, great show, very fair. But there was a trend of white women, if you will, I can only assume they were white women, calling in basically saying that they were uncomfortable with Kamala's body language, and that's why they're not going to vote for Biden. They just don't right. feel comfortable with, with a passionate, and that was what got me, a passionate woman like that being in charge. And it's like this isn't about her passion or her body language. They're uncomfortable. Daniel, the that's all Obama, code for the color of her skin. You got that right. And as somebody who, just to you know, get this out there to everybody listening, I worked my way out of corporate America because of that kind of stuff. I could be, I was a C-level executive for a few large companies, and we'd be in board meetings where, you know, John Smith is slamming the desk and getting his point across, and if I raise my voice or get assertive, it's deemed as being too passionate. And it just goes is back to you're the black? whole con- Yeah. Yeah, because I'm black. You know, you're, black people are too passionate, right? White people right. just got a little bit upset that day. Yeah. So it just yeah, goes this is back all code. to that whole thing of you got to listen. And it's the great Joe Madison says, you have to listen with your third ear. These people are mm-hmm. uncomfortable with her body language. They're uncomfortable with a minority holding a position of power. And in 2020, minority, uh, you know, gay, lesbian, whatever, like I... Can we get past that? And where did moderation go? Right? If Pence ends up being 
the president because of poor choices by Trump, we're going to have an extreme right-leaning Christian view person in charge. That should fear you more than a moderate person being in office. Renee in Live Oaks, California. Hey, Renee, what's on your mind? I need to talk about the voter suppression that's happening down in South Texas. I talked to my friend yesterday, and he said in all the black areas, they have taken out all the voter boxes. You have to travel 40 miles to vote. If you go into the white areas, they let the white people in right away, and the black people have to wait for hours. And that's happening. Yeah, right broadly now speaking, this is happening. This is happening all across the former, the former slave states. The governor of Texas has said that Harris County, for example, I believe it's Harris County is where Houston is. Four point something million people can have one ballot drop box. There's a large black population there as well, but it's a, it's a major city. Major cities tend to vote Democratic. And we're seeing the same thing in Georgia. We're seeing, you know, I, literally people were standing in line for 10 and 11 hours yesterday to vote in Georgia. It's the same thing in Texas. This is a crime against democracy. It's happening right in front of us. People are like, oh, look at that. People are willing to stand in line 10 hours to vote. Isn't that wonderful? It means they really care. No, it's not wonderful. This is voter suppression. I'm a white guy who has lived in relatively affluent white neighborhoods most of my life. And the three years that I that Louise and I lived in a trailer out in the woods, we were in New Hampshire, which was a white state. I have never in my life had to wait more than 15 minutes at the most to vote. But any state or any, you know, any state where you've got large Democratic cities or cities with a lot of Democrats in them in a state that is controlled by Republicans uh, and, and Georgia and Texas are at the top of this list, but it's happening in, in Louisiana. It's happening. I mean, it's happening all across the South, the former, the former Confederacy. Any state where the Republicans can control the, the election process, it's going to take a hell of a long time to vote if you are black, if you are poor, or if you are a student. And, and in many cases, even if you're elderly. So, I mean, you know, let's just, let's just acknowledge that that's what's so and that's what's going on. I just have 45 seconds to the break here, so I just want to uh, share one other thing. This is uh, this just came out in a in a in a case called Smith v. Illinois Department of Transportation that came before the Seventh Circuit, which is where Amy Coney Barrett sits right now and has for three years because Mitch McConnell refused to uh, to put a qualified black woman on that court who Barack Obama had nominated. McConnell refused to allow it. He held the seat open for Mac- for Barrett. And in this case, Smith v. Illinois, uh, a, uh, a black man had sued saying that the N-word was being used in his workplace. And she said, she wrote, the N-word is an egregious racial epithet. That said, Smith can't win simply by proving that the word was uttered. He must also demonstrate that the use of this word altered the conditions of his employment and created a hostile or abusive working environment. In other words, Amy Coney Barrett believes that if you shout the N-word at a black person in the workplace, that is not sufficient evidence that you are creating a, quote, hostile or abusive working environment. This is who's before the Judiciary Committee right now. The uh, Lieutenant Governor of Michigan, Garland Gilchrist, is with us from Lansing. Lieutenant Governor Gilchrist, it is great to have you back on the program. Um, I'm wondering what the current state of these right-wing terrorists and their, their assaults on your state, where are things at? 
Well, Tom, thank you for having me back on the show. It's always good to be here with you and your listeners. And first of all, we're thankful to the law enforcement professionals that the FBI on the federal level, the Attorney General, the state police, they stepped up and stopped these terrorist gang members before they were able to inflict uh, and, and execute the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, before they were able to storm the Capitol and try to kill lawmakers and blow up the building, to kill law enforcement, blow up bridges. They had a pretty elaborate plot that was credible, and so I'm glad that that was thwarted. And right now, um, those guys are having their first days in court, and you're going to be able to see as the uh, the investigation continues um, all the things they were planning and why this needed to be stopped. And in Michigan, you know, me and the governor have tried to be really explicit that this is not acceptable. And it's also not acceptable for Republican enablers, starting from President Trump to the Republican leadership in the state of Michigan, who have enabled and met with and legitimized these terrorist organizations that have wanted to do ill harm. And in fact, on the day that the charges were announced, both the Speaker of the House and the Senate Majority Leader in the Michigan legislature, they went outside to an anti-Whitmer rally on the steps of the Capitol and told people to keep up the good work. It's unacceptable, um, but we're going to keep pressing forward doing the people's business. They can't scare us out of what's right. Yeah, good on you. Uh, we're talking with the lieutenant governor for the state of Michigan, Garland Gilchrist. Garland, I, I grew up in Michigan, as you know, and, and uh, when I was a teenager, um, I, I wasn't close to these guys. Uh, a friend of mine was very close to them, um, but I met them uh, more than once, uh, who called themselves the Michigan Militia. Um, uh, one of the kids that I knew, his dad was in this thing, and they used to go up to northern Michigan, up near Grayling, as I recall, and they had a camp up there where they would do target practice and, and you know, military kind of style training. And this would have been in 1967, 68. I mean, you know, maybe even 66. So uh, this, these, these groups have been around Michigan for a long, long time. I'm guessing Michigan's not unique in this. Um, how, how extensive is this across the United States? Have you gotten any feedback on that? And, and what can be done aside from waking the public up to this? Well, you know, Tom, waking the public up is important to recognize that this isn't necessarily just people uh, writing things on Facebook or Twitter, although these guys all had uh, records and history of writing things on the Internet. And this isn't just idle words that idle that these words matter. You know, my, my mother's a Baptist minister. And, you know, in my Bible says that the power of life and death is in the tongue. And so it is important that we recognize that these words can lead to deeds and actions. And so when you have the president, like, literally, personally, dangerously attacking Governor Gretchen Whitmer and calling people to arms in the state of Michigan, that creates the space rhetorically for these actions to happen in real life. So I think what needs to happen is people do need to wake up and and recognize that these threats are real and be vigilant, but also recognize that the reason that these people are so are, are afraid to the point where they feel like they want to resort to violence is because the right things are happening. And ultimately, we can overwhelm um, all of this wrong um, with right. We can defeat these destructive people um, through the democratic process. And if we continue to, to vote out the people who enable them, they will have less space to operate. And the more that they, we, we, we sort of relegate them to the fringe of our society rather than the mainstream alongside the presidency. Um, then we have the ability to be able to contain uh, those threats of physical violence to people in Michigan. Are you all talking with the attorney generals, lieutenant governors and governors of other states? Uh, I'm guessing this is not happening in a vacuum. Yeah, it doesn't. And, you know, even the, the, the FBI or the federal feds themselves, Department of Homeland Security, has said that, you know, since Trump took office, the rise in violent right wing extremism um, has been and in hate crimes and things like that has gone up 
considerably. And so, I mean, his own administration officials have even acknowledged that, that he is causing uh, these problems or enabling people who want to cause this kind of harm. And so I've been in conversation with my counterparts in other states. Our attorney general, Dana Nessel, she's been hard at work with this along with her colleagues. And so there's continued work to be done to make sure that no one is threatened, whether you are a governor or whether you are a citizen, a, you know, a resident who's not an elected official, your, your safety is important. I mean, I saw two of these men who were arrested with my own eyes in the Senate gallery in Michigan with semi-automatic weapons when they came there to storm the Capitol months ago. You know, um, we really need to make sure that we're taking precautions like banning guns in Michigan State Capitol, one of only two state capitals where you can even bring a gun in. You can't bring a gun to any government building in Michigan except the Michigan State Capitol. So we, there, there are things that can be done, but our Republican legislature is unwilling to do it. And that's why we need new legislators and legislators leadership. Yeah, uh, back in, I think it was 67, Ronald Reagan was uh, governor of California and Bobby Seale and Huey Newton, as I recall, carried guns into mm-hmm. the state capitol, walked right by him. He was talking to a bunch of students. Within, within two weeks, they had legislation panning open carry in, in <laughs> California. Um, it, it, it's just amazing. Uh, Garland, we have about 45 seconds left. I'm, 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 you know, back when I knew these guys, they were all about the John Birch Society and communists and, and government power and all this kind of stuff. And I didn't notice that it was racialized, but I lived in a largely white community, and in fact, in an entirely white community at that time, and they were all white guys. To what extent has this been racialized now? Well, when they stormed the Capitol months ago, these people had Nazi paraphernalia. They had Confederate flags draped around their guns right next to their Trump flags. And so race is a big component of this. Misogyny is a big component of this because they're comfortable with an intelligent, empowered and decisive woman like Governor Gretchen Whitmer. But we're not going to let them scare us out of this, whether we're people of color, women or just people in, in our state. Good, good. And please give our very best to, go- to Governor Whitmer and everybody you're working with, Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist. Garland, thanks so much for dropping by today. Great talking with you. Thank you, Tom. Everyone be safe. Bill and Crystal Lake. I just have a suggestion. Watching the news yesterday, there was a- people in line lined up forever and signs saying no public restrooms available. And I mentioned to my right. wife, she thought it was a good idea that I call you about the fact that people, when they go vote and stand in line, bring somebody else with you, a neighbor, friend, relative. And so what one can hold the place while the other one goes to find a restroom and then take turns that way. And when it's time and you're at the front, go for it and vote. But people who go singly uh, with no one else and they got to go to the bathroom and get out of line, you know, they may lose their spot and then give up. Yeah. I've even heard stories of people wearing adult diapers, you know, to go to vote. I mean, it's that bad. So, Bill, that's a great suggestion. Bring somebody with you who can hold your place in line. Bill, thank you. Thanks for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Go to IWillVote.com, check your voter registration. In many states, you can actually check and see if you've mailed in a ballot, if it's been recorded yet. So lots of great stuff there. And be sure to, you know, wake up your friends, right? <laughs> get, it, get out there and vote. Tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.